have a seat this morning. Um, uh, just a quick note on this, uh, just so that you know, uh, more or less over the coming weeks, we're going to be in uh, Acts. And so we're going to be taking it about a chapter at a time. Now, uh, if you look at Acts chapter 12, which is where we are today, you'll notice it's pretty long passage. So we're not going to read the entire passage every Sunday morning, but if you want to be studying alongside of us, there's two ways that you can know uh, what that's going to look like. First and foremost, we're taking it about a chapter at a time, so if you want to be studying in uh, Acts chapter 13 next week, you can just be studying alongside of our elder team as we're doing that. Uh, the second thing is that on uh, Friday, we're going to be sending out emails uh, just saying, hey, here's where we're going to be on Sunday, here's the link if you want to tune in, uh, you know, over the interwebs, uh, so you can know that, you can be following along with us there. So I think that that's really going to strengthen some things, because it's going to take a little bit of pressure off of me as I try to uh, keep our sermon links a little, uh, little shorter and everything that you study alongside so that you know what's in the passage. The second thing is, um, we've operated in a little bit of ambiguity over the last, uh, well, I don't know, probably years at this point, where um, on Sunday mornings, maybe you're standing up for the reading of God's Word, maybe you're sitting down depending on what we tell you to do uh, from up here. Sometimes it's been confusing, sit up, stand up, sit down, kneel, take a knee, whatever. You're, we're going to be standing for the reading of God's Word. So if, if we're going to be reading that, y'all just feel free to stay standing uh, after we sing that last song so that we can be praying and then also reading the uh, Word of the Lord. Is there something super spiritual about that? No, but I do think that there is a reverence and there's something uh, just about God's people uh, remaining standing to receive God's Word. The second thing is, is that uh, you may not come from a liturgical background. That is a, you know, kind of more high church, you know, orientation. And so you may may have never have heard anybody say, this is the word of the Lord, but the response there is, praise be to God. Um, you don't have to say it, but we are going to be saying that uh, at City Church, and so if you just want to heartily say, praise be to God, there's something really cool that I think happens in doing that. Uh, if we have non-believers who are coming in, they're seeing not just one person standing up with a copy of scriptures, they're saying, they're hearing everybody go, we all agree this is the word of the Lord and praise be to Him because He has spoken to us. So uh, that's what we're going to be doing in the new year. Uh, it's just a small thing, but I think that it's something that will result in a greater testimony out of City Church. So that's what we're going to be doing uh, moving forward. But if you would, take a look at Acts chapter 12, because there's quite a few things that we're going to cover out of this passage this morning, even though we won't be touching on everything. My kids have told me several times over the last uh, few months, uh, a couple of them, not all three, because the, I don't think that the third one, Henry, is actually thinking about this right now, but my older two, Jackson and Ryan, have said this to me recently, I can't wait to be an adult. I just can't wait to be an adult, and I always reply the same thing back to them, I can't wait for you to be an adult either. Your mom and I, we are going to rock empty nesthood. I think we're going to crush it. Uh, and it's not because we don't want them there. We love our kids. They are a blessing and a reward. But we decided day one, not even day one of like them being born, day one that we found out that we were pregnant, that we were raising adults. We weren't raising children. I don't want uh, a man-child coming out of my home. I don't want uh, there to be a uh, weak woman coming out of my home. I want for them to be strong adults. I want them to be citizens of a great kingdom and operating as citizens, uh, good citizens in this world as well. That's what I'm after. But it, it, it's interesting because even though that's been our um, uh, even though that's been our aim, their reasoning is actually a little discouraging. 
they say, man, dad, I can't wait to be an adult. And you know what their reason was? It wasn't because they just can't wait for that just mantle of responsibility and for them to, what they've told me is, is because adults can do whatever they want. I want to be an adult because adults get to do whatever they want, whatever they please. Little do they know that adults can, in fact, not do whatever they want right? Any adults in the room uh, get this? I mean, we all have, uh, you know, jobs of one kind or another. We all have responsibility for our families and our loved ones. Uh, We all have bodies that are, like, deteriorating. So, physically, we actually can't do everything that we want. Like, I mean, we can't do everything that we want. Adulthood, in fact, adulthood done right is a web of constraints on a human being to keep you from doing whatever you want so that you might do whatever you must in order to become the person that you want to be. That's what real adulthood is. It's not like doing whatever you want. All of us know a few adults that do whatever they want, and it normally involves like an Xbox, or it involves, I don't know, some other kind of thing that like just isn't leading to flourishing in life. Doing whatever you want is actually not a good thing for you. And and FYI, the definition of irony The actual definition, if you open up a dictionary and say, what is irony? It's having the creatures that you made, that you clean up after, that you take to school, that you bathe, that you provide for, that you feed, that you teach, that you worry about, that you dream, and that you disciple, say, you get to do whatever you want. That's the definition of irony. Because these little creatures that keep me from doing what I want, it's actually a really, really good thing. What they mean, of course, is, that, uh, is not that you get to do whatever you want. What they actually mean is uh, you don't have a parent telling you what to do. And, and that's a not so subtle dig, right? They're telling me, hey, you don't have a parent telling you what you have to do. And the obvious assumption is, is that they do, and they do. They have a parent telling them exactly what I want them to do. But what our kids think about adulthood is so much what adults really deeply want and fight for themselves. Do you get this? What my kids think that adulthood is, is what adults are constantly fighting for. Every single self-help book that has ever been sold, every lazy person who hates themselves for not having it, and every driven person believes that it's just around the corner. Do you know what it is? It's control. What, what, what my kids think, what, our, what kids just in general, not my kids, but like what kids in general think that adulthood is, is you being able to control things. And adults are not so different. We purchase all kinds of books. We hate ourselves for all kinds of reasons. We believe that just around the corner when we make that next promotion or we get the next uh, bit of money or when we uh, really get to control our spouse, that we will have that uh, control of our lives. We will be our own sovereign. You know what that word means? It means to be in control. We will be our own sovereigns. That's what we want. And Acts chapter 12 points us towards a deeper truth about sovereignty and who has it and why it is good that they have it. It says this, this is what we're going to discover this morning, is that the striking sovereignty of God delivers both rescue and retribution. The striking, we use that word specifically, the striking sovereignty of God delivers rescue or retribution. That's what we're going to find here in the text. Just by way of context, uh, you know, because we're coming after, you know, uh, a group of Sundays that we spend in Advent and kind of a one-off sermon-ish kind of thing from last week. Apologize for that. Um, 
what, we, what we're discovering when we get back to Acts is, is that we uh, were up in Antioch. We were seeing the gospel spread abroad, and then here in Acts chapter 12, it actually goes back to Jerusalem. It goes back to Peter. So it's not Saul and Barnabas. Saul becomes Paul. It's not the two of them. We're going back. It's almost like we're uh, saying, meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, that's what's happening. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, uh, we pick up uh, in this next episode, things really aren't looking so good for the early church in Jerusalem. We find Peter, Peter the rock, Petros, on this Petros, on this rock, I will build my church. That was what Jesus told Jerusalem. Peter, the rock, is in Jerusalem, and uh, what we discover is that there is continuing and maybe even building animosity towards early Christians, and it's specifically coming from the Jews. And it's led to a, a new character in this plot line. He's going to sound familiar. You're going to think that you know him, but you don't. It's a man named Herod. Now, Herod is, uh, is this kind of uh, progeny of, a pro of some people that we have heard about. Herod is uh, the uh, progeny of the Herod who tried uh, to kill Jesus as a baby. You remember the wise men? They're coming in saying, hey, where's the great king? Herod's thinking, I don't like the sound of another king. Maybe I'll just kill all of the babies in Bethlehem. Go, go, go to Bethlehem, report back to me, and then he's killing babies, literally, to preserve his own power. So it's a different Herod, but that's uh, this Herod's grandfather, okay? It, it, that's one of the Herods that we've talked, uh, talked about in the past. Herod also, uh, one of the prior Herods, beheaded John, John the Baptist, and he tried tried as in like gavel. He was one of the, uh, one of the previous uh, Herods was one of the people that tried Jesus before he was crucified. So, just building some connections, some context, because this Herod is coming from a family of egomaniacal politicians. They were pretty skilled politicians. And these politicians uh, of uh, Roman uh, persuasion weren't afraid to kill in order to further the, uh, the kingdom of Rome and further their own kingdoms. That's who this Herod is. Herod is just from this family of uh, egomaniacs, this group of politicians that was holding and keeping power for themselves. Now, at the killing of the apostle James, what this Herod discovers is that it's politically expedient for him to persecute Christians. I don't actually think that he really even cared about Christians all that much. What he found was is that this uh, uh, tempest, this group of people named the Jews that were always stirring up some kind of craziness, that he could actually win some of their support by beginning to persecute Christians, because the Jews didn't like the Christians. So he kills James. We're going to come back to that here in just a little bit, but uh, what, what Herod discovers is that by killing James and beginning to persecute the church, he's winning favor. He's winning political favor with the Jews. And as the Jews celebrate that, Herod tracks down Peter. Peter is the primary kind of apostle and elder in Jerusalem, and he puts him in prison, and it says in this passage that he publicly plans to kill him. He's, gonna, he's got Peter in jail for a reason. He's holding on to him for a reason. There was this feast of unleavened bread. That should sound familiar to a lot of us because it's what precedes Passover. This is the same time that Jesus is arrested, that Jesus is actually killed. It, this would have been significant for Christians. They would have been remembering this time of year not so fondly. 
I mean, just in terms of Jesus being arrested. And here now, James, the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder, is killed. He's the first apostle that we have record in Luke of being killed. So they would have been pretty down at this time. And the next thing they know, Peter, the primary elder there in Jerusalem, is put in prison. And they hear, uh, whether they hear it or not, we're not told uh, necessarily that the plans are there to kill him, but they get the idea. They've already seen James killed. So, what's happening here? Herod is not just persecuting them. We'll find out here in just a moment that Herod is also angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. He's essentially starving them to death. Okay, so we're not just talking about the early Christians here. We're also talking about the people of the region that would have been depending on Herod for their own food. We're told that in the passage. You can look there and see that the people of Tyre and Sidon, they're being starved to death. There's a lot of unrest for Herod. There's lots of things happening. There are a lot of geopolitical things that are happening in this region. And what Herod thinks is by taking more control, by doing things that are maybe evil, we see them as evil, that he's actually working for a greater good. That's what he thinks. There's lots of unrest. Herod is actually trying to achieve his ends. He's trying to kill Peter. We're going to find here in a moment that he, uh, in order to like, uh, find a way of uh, winning back the people of Tyre and Sidon, he's going to uh, receive word from them and he's going to feed them again. And they're really excited about this because if you've ever been without food for a day, I mean, you know, you can get pretty hungry. These people have probably been starving for weeks, months, maybe even years deliberately being starved of food by Herod. And what Herod plans to do is not just kill Peter to satisfy the Jews. He's going to feed this group of people. He's going to get up. He's going to put on this big coat. And what we're told by uh, Josephus, who's actually a Jewish, uh, um, he's a Jewish historian, is that he's not a Christian. He says that uh, we've actually got a really good account of this. Herod puts on this huge robe that's uh, actually has, it's kind of sequiny. They take little bits of polished mirror, like from metal, and it's just tied all over him. And he's going to sit out in the sun, reflecting the sunlight to these people, and he's going to deliver this big oration saying, I'm feeding you now. You see what he's doing? He's taking control. He's taking control. Herod is unmistakably focused on his own glory, and he'll do anything, include killing and starving people to win for his kingdom. Now, here's, here's the tricky point here. When we think about a tyrant like this, it's easy to kind of demonize him. But, but what I want for us to understand is, is that we do some of the same things here. You're like, I'm pretty sure I've never starved anybody. Pretty sure that I haven't ever plotted to kill people or actually killed anybody, but, but let's get underneath that a little bit. What he's really trying to do is get control of a situation. How many of us, just in the midst of a lot of chaos, a lot of unrest, try to bring control in rather than giving it up? Does anybody else feel that? I do that. I do that perpetually. The area that I do that the most in is my house. It's with my kids when I feel out of control, my kids will tell you I'm a bit of a yeller. It's not a good thing. I'm not going to justify it. When I feel out of control, I try to get control back. 
I try to figure out how to regain that control. I'll intimidate a little bit with my voice. I'll, I'll stand up a little taller, a little straighter, say things a little more sternly. So I may be no Herod in terms of killing people, but I've got the same things inside of my heart. I've got the same inclinations to regather control. Personally, the more difficult, the more chaotic things get, the more I want to control things. I wonder if you're the same way. I wonder if rather than giving things up, you depend on yourself in the midst of chaos. So here we pick up with Peter, and Peter's situation is rather different than Herod's. Can we all agree with this? Like Herod's, uh, Peter's not a king like Herod is, okay? In, in fact, he's not the grandson of anybody that you know. Peter, I mean, we know, uh, we know for the lineage's sake who Herod is from. We don't know any of that stuff from Peter. We might get a name, but we don't really know anything about him. The, the thing that is most notable about Peter is that as he is standing on a shoreline, some random person walks up and says, hey, come follow me. And he goes, okay. He just has a little mustard seed of faith. And he follows this man named Jesus. I mean, through a bunch of really difficult teaching and situations, ultimately he sees this Jesus killed on a cross after rejecting him three times, so Peter's a very different character than Herod. While he briefly finds himself leading the early church in Jerusalem, he really has no power or prestige to speak of. Peter's kind of a nobody, which is why it was easy for Herod to devalue his life. So instead of uh, great glory and all of these other things, he's instead been arrested as a pawn in Herod's campaign of self-exaltation, and he's put into a prison. And this prison, just so that you get the idea of where Peter is, would have been a bleak place. It would have been filthy. When it was cold outside, it would have been cold in there. When it was hot outside, it would have been hot in there. The stink, the wretch, all of these things that would have been there would have been demoralizing, depressing, degrading to him as a human being. And here he is, we're told, shackled to two guards. Evidently, Herod thought that it was, was not that Peter was so important, but that this situation was so important that he couldn't mess it up. So he actually gets four squads of soldiers, shackles him to two of them, places guards outside, locked door, locked door, locked door. The place that Peter is is pretty hopeless. It's a pretty hopeless place that Peter finds himself in. And this makes sense in some ways that there would have been four squads of Roman guards that were put around him because uh, the Romans would have believed something about Christians. They would have believed that Christians are pretty sly. They're pretty, pretty slippery. We've heard all of these situations where like, you know, these people get in trouble, these Christians get in trouble, and they just seem to slip away. Even their leader, Jesus, we've heard about him like passing through people I mean, just getting around them. We've seen them actually uh, steal a body from the grave. They would have believed, Romans would have believed at this time that like Christians were uh, grave robbers, that they stole the body of Jesus. We're not going to let any of that stuff happen. That's what Herod's thinking. I'm putting four squads of soldiers making sure that Peter stays in prison. And what is Peter doing at this time? 
Look at it with me. What is he doing? When the, when the angel shows up, what is he doing? He's bound with two chains, and centuries uh, were before the door. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a shining light uh, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him. He woke him up. What was Peter doing at this time? We know what Herod was doing. He was grabbing for power. He was doing everything in his might to make sure that he retained and, uh, and brought more glory and honor to himself. And here, Peter is on the floor of a prison. What's Peter doing at this time? He's sleeping. In fact, we're, we're told now, the angel says, uh, get up quickly. The chains fell off his hands. The angel said, dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you. Follow me. Come on. What are you waiting for? What we find is, is that Peter's groggy out of this sleep. He's half naked between these two soldiers, sleeping. What is Peter doing at this time? Is he, you know, trying to uh, saw through the side? Is he like, you know, uh, Shawshank redemptioning this thing? Is he trying to carve out like some piece of the cell to get out? What is he doing? He's doing nothing. He's doing nothing. Peter recognizes he has no control over his circumstances. He has no authority over the guards. He presumably is not a lock picker himself, and even if he was, he's surrounded by all of these guards. He's hopeless. He's helpless. Now, this is is a good opportunity, I think, to correct an anti-gospel. It's an anti-gospel that I think I hear quite a bit in some shape or form here in Bible Belt Christianity is that is God helps those who help themselves. I'll even confess to you, like there's part of that that I really resonate with. I'm just like, stop being lazy. Like God uses like your efforts. He, he's going to help you out. Just help yourself a little bit. God helps those who help themselves. Have you heard this? What do we see with Peter. He doesn't say, the, the angel doesn't show up and say, get to work, Peter. You're asleep. Start sawing at the bars on your cell. Do something. Peter must have been there pretty desperate, pretty lonely. Peter must have been experiencing some sadness for his uh, brother, uh, his, uh, not his literal brother, but his uh, brother in Christ, James. He must have been grappling at some level with the certainty that he would die. He's not thinking he's getting out of here. He's alone on this uh, jail cell thinking, I'm done. There had to be some questions, some thoughts, some concern. There had to be, I want you to imagine that you're in Peter's place. What are the things, what are the emotions, what are the affections that are going on in your heart? What are you thinking about? Had to have been pretty helpless. He can't do anything except for sleep. Here's what we get in all of this. James, you know, he's dead. Peter's feeling like he's going to die. Ultimately, Herod seems like he is the one that's in control of this situation, and Peter lacks any control at all. And then what happens in verse 6? An angel of the Lord shows up, and there's one word that is used. It's kind of a strange word. Do you see it? It says, he struck Peter. Why the word struck? It's like, hey, get up. And there's something in this word that makes me think that it's not like this, like, hey, I'm here. I'm here to save you. I think, he, 
I think the angel kicks him like, hey, get up. Wake up. We got things to do. God sent me here. Don't mess this up. Put your cloak on. Put your sandals on. Let's get out of here. Chains are off. Doors are open. And Peter, before he even realizes what is happening, is out in the city. Though Peter was helplessly shackled to two guards, though he was under lock and key, though he was sleeping, the Lord had other plans. The chains fell off. He step-by-step tells Peter what to do. It's not like Peter sees the, you know, chains are off and he's like, I got this from here, angel. He doesn't, he's, he's not even like conscious of what's going on around him. The angel is telling him step-by-step what he needs to do because Peter is not in control. And he's struck. Verse 11. After Peter makes his way out of this, after he regains consciousness, he says, now I am sure that the Lord has sent an angel to rescue me from the hand of Herod. And was it anything for God? I mean, God was displaying something about this situation. He had a different plan, and it was easy for him to execute. Herod couldn't have done anything in this situation, to thwart God's plan. It was so surprising, it was so striking, the sovereignty of God. Now, here's what's happening in other parts of the city. Christians, we're told here in Acts chapter 12, are praying for Peter. They're praying for him. And Peter makes his way out of this jail cell with the hand of God, like literally shepherding him along. And he's like, I'm, I'm not safe. I'm not safe. I need to get somewhere. Maybe I can go and, and, and find these other Christians. And what are they doing? What does the passage say that they're doing? They're praying. What are they praying for? They're praying that God would rescue Peter. And then what happens? Peter runs up to the door, knock, 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 knock. Servant girl comes hey, it's Peter, let me in. She hears his voice, recognizes his voice, forgets to unlock the door, runs back upstairs to this group of people. This is supposed to be a comedic scene, by the way. Like the Bible is literally being funny. The girl comes up, he's, Peter's here. Peter's at the door. And they're like, no, he's not here. God, please save Peter. No, I'm telling you, he's at the door. You're crazy. Father, please just save Peter. Peter, I'm telling you, I heard his voice. Maybe you're seeing an angel because he's supposed to be dead. Father, just save Peter. Finally, they convince him to go downstairs, and who's there? It's Peter. It's an answered prayer. These these Christians would have been praying, and we're going to be talking in a little bit about how they were praying, and God literally answers the prayer. They can't even believe it. They're praying almost, you get the idea that they're praying with some, so little of, I mean, a lot of earnestness, but no real expectation that God's going to do anything. Does that resonate with you? I pray all the time with great earnestness, with faith. I still have this reservation in the back of my mind that God's really going to do it. Here he is answering, and it's nothing for him. It's nothing for God to answer this prayer. Who's in control? God displays His striking sovereignty by miraculously 
rescuing Peter. There's nothing that restrains him. There's not any amount of control that God has to go get in order to be able to rescue Peter. But who is it now that we, we want to know, like, okay, so he's in charge of that rescue, but who is in charge, who's in control of the politics and of the people and of Herod himself? Verse 21, let's read it together. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, uh, great name, by the way, Blastus, it's just an idea for any of you guys who are, like, pregnant, thinking about getting pregnant, Blastus great name, okay? The king's chamberlain. They asked for peace. So, so Herod's plot is working. He's like, I'm going to starve these people until they come to me and tell me and give me what I need, and that's more control over them. His plan is working. They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On the appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, these shimmery robes, took his seat upon a throne high above everyone. They wouldn't have chanced him getting killed. They would have put him high up on a wall. He would have been dictating over people, and that's just what he does. It says that he took the throne and delivered an oration to him, and the people were shouting, the voice of God and not the voice of man. Now, I want to read that over again because I missed it like the first 10 times. I was like, what are they doing? Why are they saying that to him? Are they demanding that, like, God's voice be heard rather than him? No, they're calling him a God. This oration that we're hearing, this man who just saved us and gave us food to eat, that's the voice of God. That's what they're saying. The people of Tyre and Sidon are saying, that's the voice of God and not of man. Here's what we need to know. Here, and put on this robe. He took a seat on his throne, and he delivered an oration. He may not have been in control of Peter. That may have angered him. He may have killed the guards that were supposed to be watching him, but he is taking care of business. That's what he's doing right here. Do you get it? Like, he's angry that his plan has been thwarted, and what he's doing is taking it out on another group of people. That's what he's doing. That's what he's on about. He's, like, grabbing for control. He goes, I lost it. I've got to get it back. I've got to feel in control of this situation. And the people seem to be confirming that he's taking care of business, the voice of God, and not of man. He's played them. He's starving them. They probably had to bribe Blastus just to get the information. We're, we're willing to do whatever it takes. And he waits and he feeds them so that he might look like a hero. The crowd has been tricked into thinking that Herod is their salvation, and his theatrics confuse them, this bright, shining, just robe and the thrones, and they're thinking uh, in their very Roman way, here's a God. This is a God. Herod's maybe even convinced himself and other people that he's sovereign. He's saying that the, uh, just, all he has to do is say the word and soldiers die. All he has to do is deliver an oration and Tyre and Sidon are fed. He must have felt very in control. But underneath that shimmering metal robe and atop that man-made throne, behind the deceptive oration was still a man, flesh and blood, broken, grabbing for control. 
I wonder for us, like, what ways do we see ourselves in Herod? It's really easy to read about such an ugly guy and just go, I'm nothing like that. I'm nothing like that. But I'm wondering, how do you put on robes? How do you put on these robes? What, what seats, what thrones do you put yourself on? Are you looking for, like, responsibility so that other people might respect you? Are you looking to say the right thing on a social media or in a conversation so that other people think that you're smart? Are you yelling at your kids so that they think that you're something? So that they obey you? I'm just wondering, what, what robes do you put on? Herod isn't the only bad guy. He's doing what just comes naturally to him. How do you set up yourself as God over your own circumstances? How do you grope for power and control? How are you like Herod? Verse 23 clears up any remaining confusion for us Herods. Because if God is already the striking sovereign God of rescue, He's also another kind of God. Read it with me. Verse 23, what does it say? Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. The voice of God and not of man, and immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him, just like Peter, but it struck him down because he did not give glory to God. He uses the same word. He uses this word strike. He's not using it. Luke is not using it all over Acts. This is a very deliberate thing that Luke is doing here. He's saying that these two men were struck. God's sovereignty knows no bounds, not for a poorly inmate in a cell and not for a high king like Herod. Why did God do this? Why did he kill Herod? Was it retaliation for James? God loved James. Was it retaliation for James? Look at the passage. Was it retaliation for James? It was not retaliation for James. It tells us why. He did not give glory to God. He set himself up as a God, and God did not like it, and he struck him down. And what does it say happened to him? He was eaten by worms, and he breathed his last he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Think about that for a second. He was eaten by worms and then breathed his last? This doesn't make any sense. Why is it in that order? Actually, Josephus tells us. A historian tells us. Do you know why he was eaten by worms and then breathed his last? It's because he had tapeworms. We know from like extra biblical texts that he had tapeworms inside of himself. This whole time that he's like grabbing for control, trying to tell the people of uh, Tyre and Sidon, I'm the one who's in control, he doesn't have any control over himself. He has these tapeworms eating him from the inside out. And an angel of the Lord strikes him in this moment, he falls dead and breathes his last. That is a biblical thing to happen. 
That is a crazy thing to happen. Do you get this? This guy who was trying to set himself up as his own God, God goes, I'm just totally sovereign here. You're going to be eaten from the inside out and in front of everybody on your man-made throne in your robes of fake righteousness. You're going to fall dead. That's what happened. And it's not just the Bible that's saying that. We know that that actually happened. Isn't that crazy? It's nuts. I love moments like this where it's just like you look at it and you look at the scriptures and you, it's not a story anymore. It like actually happened. That's crazy. What we're seeing right here in this moment is that God is strikingly sovereign. And he does not tolerate it when a man does not give glory to him. For this false God, this wannabe, shimmering control freak, God striking sovereignty is not rescue, it is retribution. That's heavy. That's a part of God's sovereignty that we don't tend to like, that we don't tend to talk about. So God striking sovereignty works out it works itself out. And, and in these two cases, let's be honest, it works out the way that we want it to. Peter is saved, and we go, yay, God's sovereignty. And then a tyrant is put to death on the spot, and we go, yay, God's sovereignty. But we got to remember something. In the same passage, what else has happened? What about James? James was killed at the whim in the hand of Herod. Was God sovereign over that? How do we understand God's sovereignty, his control, his power with the things that we don't like? When things don't go the way that we will, that we want, how do we deal with that? How do you understand when God's will seemingly brings about things that seem contrary to his nature? Do you ever feel that? You ever see the death of a loved one and you go, God, where were you? You ever see a, a person ruling in power and it seems like there's no consequence for them and you go, God, how is that part of your will? We're not just looking at a passage where we go, yes, to the sovereignty of God. We're also looking at a passage that is really complicated, that meets us in the midst of our experience where we go, God, what is your will? Why do you will this? Why are you wanting this? Why are you allowing this to happen? Why are you designing it this way? The striking sovereignty of God always delivers rescue or retribution. He always does it. That's the answer to that question. You go, well, why doesn't it work out now? It's like, he always does it. Why doesn't it happen in my timing? He always does it. Why does it seem like it just happens in the situation with Peter and with Herod? It doesn't. It happens with James too. When you feel most uncomfortable with it, God's striking sovereignty always delivers rescue or retribution. How do we understand that? The way that we understand injustice and God's allowance for evil for a time is actually by looking at Jesus and his death. Never was anyone less deserving of the retribution of God than Jesus. He was perfectly righteous. James didn't deserve to die at the hand of Herod, 
But like times a trillion, Jesus in his perfect righteousness did not deserve to die on a cross. Christians had seen their friend, their elder, James, killed by Herod. And how were they responding? They were responding in prayer for Peter. Father, don't let Peter die. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer, earnest prayer. See that in verse 5. Earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. Earnest prayer was the response. These believers knew that God was in control. He was the one in control. Herod wasn't in control. These Christians knew it. They knew who was in control, and they were responding in prayer. God, don't allow for Peter to be killed. They knew who was in control, so they asked the one who was in control, just like Jesus. I'm, gonna, I'm going to turn just for a moment to read something from you or for you. You don't have to turn there, but this is in uh, Luke chapter 22. Jesus, on the night that he was arrested and then crucified, came out and went, as his, was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And he told them, pray that you do not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. He's literally asking God, please rescue me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. What a strange thing. An angel comes to strengthen him in this moment. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Did you hear the word there? He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. How do we understand God's sovereignty, his striking sovereignty? We understand it by looking at Jesus. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane kneels down and makes earnest prayer. Jesus knew that God the Father was the one in control, so he asked him, God, will you remove this cup? The believers in Acts chapter 12 say, Father, we don't want Peter to die like James. Rescue him. Jesus here in uh, Luke chapter 22 says this. He says, Father, I don't want to die. Rescue me. How do we understand God's mysterious will? The Father answers the prayers for Peter, and he is rescued. The Father's striking sovereignty saves but the fathers, Father doesn't answer Jesus' prayers for rescue the same way, does He? Man, that's crazy. What does Jesus do even in the midst of those prayers? He submits to the Father's striking will, not my will, but yours be done. And here's the gospel paradox. Are you with me? Here's the gospel paradox for us this morning. By not answering Jesus' prayers for rescue, he answers yours. Early believers, they see James die. They see Peter in prison waiting for death, and they go, Father, just rescue him. And he does. He rescues him. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane 
prays earnestly, let this cup pass. I don't want to die. I don't want to be separated from you. I don't want to do this. But not my will, but yours be done. And the Father doesn't answer that prayer the same way. He answers our prayers for rescue. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. God's striking sovereignty delivers either sweet salvation, just like Peter, or the severe sword of judgment. If your prayers are for rescue, then you can be certain of your salvation because of Jesus' judgment. If you will not, if you cannot submit to God's striking sovereignty in this life, then you will submit to it in the next. Rescue or retribution. Those are the only two ways. There's no third way. You see God's sovereignty is striking to us. It's striking to us. Why? Because we want to be in control. But in order to be saved, you must say, just like Jesus, Father, rescue me, but not my will, yours be done. You must be like Peter, asleep, providing no effort, no work, completely helpless. You must pray with earnestness and faith that God will, that God has the will and he has the power to save you. If you've never prayed that before, I want to invite you to pray that this morning. Here's the truth. You want to know the real truth? This entire sermon is about the doctrine of God's sovereignty. I'm not going all the way in. We're not going all the way in. But you know what doctrine of God, what part of his character we study that I've seen people grapple with more and end up being saved? None. I've never, seen, I've never seen another aspect of God's character create more longing in the human soul that they might give up the control that they know that if they had would destroy themselves and would lead to an eternity of hell. Just give it up and submit to the powerful sovereignty, the striking sovereignty of God the Father. I haven't seen another doctrine. Maybe there is. Maybe you've seen one. I haven't seen it. The striking sovereignty of God is one of those things that is hard to wrestle with. It is hard to wrestle with, but it is good. It is good. If you've never prayed that God would save you, or or maybe this morning you just need to remember that helpless posture, then I would encourage you to take this moment to do it. Okay? If you've never done that before, or maybe you're just, you've heard the gospel like a bajillion times, but it just, it hasn't been that real to you. I want you to know something. This morning is an amazing opportunity for you to pray for God's rescue. And in fact, um, Carl Visser, one of our elders, is going to be up here this morning. He's going to be up here. And if you need just prayer, this morning, whether it's for salvation or, or rescue, or whether it is just, man, I just found this out, and I'm just like crushed in my spirit. I need to be rescued in prayer. I need to pray earnestly that God would just save me from like a pit, the pit of despair that I feel like I'm in this morning. I want you to know you have an opportunity this morning to actually respond to that. But let, let's this morning actually enter into that prayer together, and then we're going to sing together. Bow with me.
Father, you are strikingly sovereign. Lord, there is not one little cardiac cell in this room that didn't just beat in this moment at your direction. I mean, it's just insane how sovereign you are. There's no, like, plasma uh, stream coming out from a black hole anywhere in this universe that you are not aware of. You are so sovereign, God. But the thing that is best that you are sovereign over is our souls. And you made provision for salvation for us. God and Father, I pray that you would change hearts this morning. I pray that you would change them in this church this morning. I pray that you would uh, change them online if there is someone who is watching in, just peering in, wondering, what is it about this God, this strikingly sovereign God that just attracts me? Father, I pray that you would be making believers this morning, not just at this church, not just online. Lord, across this city, across this state, across this nation, across this world, Lord, would you be ushering souls into your kingdom this morning? You are sovereign, and you will to do it. So, Father, we uh, pray earnestly that you would do that. God and Father, for those of us who just need to be reminded of your sovereignty, that you are the one that's in control, for those of us who've made a hash of it, just a mess of it, Father, I pray that you would give us the comfort of just knowing we are not outside of your will. We are not too far gone. We have not made our way to the corner of this universe that you are somehow unaware of or not dealing with. You care very much about our souls. Father, you are strikingly sovereign. We pray for rescue. We pray for rescue, and we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.